Welcome to the Sanity Pod, honest human stories from the front lines of startup life. Our mission is to normalize the ups and downs of creating something from nothing and the challenges common to every leader, such that we might all feel a little less alone in the journey. In our first season, we are focusing on stories and tactical advice from leaders guiding organizations through the coronavirus crisis. Welcome. We are so glad you're here. Sorry, I'm a few minutes late. Holden and I have taken to playing rapid games of Catan over lunch. I love that your your excuse is like, sorry, I was late. I was playing a board game. <laughs> yeah, that's my excuse. <laughs> but it was but it was right at the end, and I was winning, so obviously I had to finish. <laughs> I'm excited today to welcome my good friend Warren Schaefer, co-founder and CEO of Knowable. Knowable is an audio-based learning platform backed by Andreessen Harowitz, First Round Capital, and Upfront Ventures. Warren and I discuss leading a startup during the pandemic, co-founder challenges and successes, and practices for managing your own mental well-being while leading through uncertain times. You're going to love meeting Warren. Now, on to Warren. Welcome to the Sanity Pod. I'm really excited that you're here. I'm curious about your motivation for being here and what caused you to say yes when I tried to convince you to come on my relatively new podcast. Well, you and I have been friends for about 10 years. You're one of my closest friends, so it'd be pretty hard for me to say no. So chatting with you for an hour. You're not supposed to tell the audience that. I want them to think that, you know, the pod has some pull and I'm getting all these fancy guests, even though we don't know each other. I I think that's a big mistake. I think your whole thought is about <laughs> being vulnerable and honest, yeah. and which is <laughs> it's like orthogonal to trying to be shiny and pristine. No, you're, I'm, we're friends. I want everyone to know we're friends. Hold on. I need to look up what orthogonal means so I can. <laughs> it's my fanciest word. It means nice. perpendicular. Amazing. Well, thank you, man. I'm so glad that you're here. It's been really fun to follow as a friend. I'll admit it to follow your journey this year leading a company through this time of uncertainty and to get to take some long walks with you and explore some of the questions at hand. And I'm excited that others will get to hear some of the human parts of that for you and also to get to hear your thoughtfulness and the way that you've stepped through it so far and maybe some of the open questions that are still there for the rest of the year. I'm really excited about this. I'm excited too. Thanks for chatting with me. Yeah, man. I'm curious if we might start with pre-COVID and where things were at in your life and with Knowable and how you were thinking about the year ahead. And then maybe we'll talk a little bit from there about the unveiling of this new reality and how much things have changed and where that leaves things. I I feel like pre-COVID is a thousand years ago. It's hard for me to remember what life was like before. I know. So maybe share just a brief background on what the company does in case any of our listeners are not familiar. And then maybe just lay the landscape of what things were like for you and for the team pre-COVID. So Noble is a seed-funded company we launched in October, so less than a year ago. We're we're fairly new. And we are building an audio-first knowledge marketplace. So when you think about e-learning today, pretty much every player in the space is focused on this idea that you have to stare at a screen in order to learn in a structured way. And I've always been a fan of audio. The number one reason that people listen to podcasts is because they want to learn new things. And yet there's no company or platform which has established itself as the place to learn 
in an audio first way online. And Noble is building that platform and that company. Amazing. So you launched in the fall. I would say the first year after a launch is relatively important in the life of a startup. What would you say? It matters. Yeah. One of the more important ones. <laughs> the first six months are throwaway. <laughs> so what were things like in, I don't know, Q4 or January before we knew how much things might change? How were you guys thinking about the year ahead and what were the plans like? Yeah. In many ways, just to kind of cut to the chase, we're believers in online education and COVID is accelerating the rate at which people are realizing that they can learn online and that they can also teach online. So what we're really excited about is opening up this marketplace model where people can turn their knowledge into a business. So uh, Matt, you're running a weekly podcast. That's, you know, obviously takes a lot of time. Our pitch to you would be, Matt, why don't you make a course that is audio first so that people can listen to what you have to teach in sort of an A to Z fashion without having to chime in on a weekly basis. I'd love to hear kind of what you've learned as a coach or how to become a coach or how to think like a leader. And that's really the pitch to an increasing number of podcasters and teachers in the world for us. Why don't I make a course? What an idea. (laughs) And how did things look pre-COVID? It sounds like COVID for knowable maybe moved up the timeline and the vision for the need for an audio-based type of learning. I'm curious, as you were working with the board and working with the team, if that caused a shift? Was there a time of uncertainty, panic, replanning? What did all of that look like for you? It's hard to admit it, but in many ways, COVID has been good for Knowable as a business. We are seeing an opportunity to really establish ourselves as the leading provider of audio-first education. And again, I think online education is just becoming this necessity for so many people around the world. There are also people who are economically needing to find a way to monetize their knowledge online. And Noble is set up to offer that, to help people basically run an education business via our platform. So I think we were optimistic, obviously, at the beginning of the year and are increasing optimistic because things have shifted more in, in favor of online learning. I will say that there was sort of a oh shit moment where we thought, oh, nobody's going to listen to audio because everyone's stuck at home, sheltering in place, not commuting, not going to the gym. And while on the surface, audio has seen a, a decline of about 20%, certain categories have actually seen a huge surge. And that includes education in terms of people's listening time for podcasts. So we're really optimistic about the space that we're in. Your team was fully remote before COVID, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I guess we were a little ahead of the curve. And partly this was just kind of personal necessity. I have two young kids and just found it too taxing to have to commute to an office every day. And so we decided that we would try the experiment of being a totally distributed team and definitely pros and cons, but we're we're more in the pro camp than the con camp even before COVID. So the transition has been been pretty seamless for us. And how have you thought about leading and partnering with your team through this time. I know the first year post-launch in and of itself is a very challenging time for a small team. There's a lot of expectations, particularly for a venture-backed company, needing to find traction, needing to find predictable growth, thinking about that next round. It can be anxiety-inducing for a small team, even without any external pressures. And now, four or five months post-launch, we layer in this pandemic. How has that been? How's the team responded? What have you been 
doing to help the team through that, to help yourself through that? I think, again, just because we were set up remote, we already had a lot of the, the frameworks in place to connect with each other online. But it's really hard. We're creatures of community. And it's so nice to see people in person that I, I think COVID is just kind of amplifying the challenges of work from home in, in that respect. But we do think, you know, we do an all hands meeting every Monday over Zoom. And we'll often start with how's everyone doing? Just a personal check in. And I think that's really important now more than ever to just think about teammates as whole people and not just your coworker, right? And knowing that they've got lives outside of work that affect how they work and how they feel. So that's something that we, we've done. We did a happy hour recently where, you know, the only rule was just don't talk about work. And I think things like that are increasingly important. I love that. What a cool rule. How was that? It was great. I was actually pretty skeptical. I thought, oh, do we need some game or something to, you know, keep everybody excited? And it was just really nice to hear about people's lives outside of work. It was sort of this unexpected thing happened where everyone just brought their dog or cat onto the video. It was like, <laughs> that was like, like an unspoken thing that people just spontaneously did. It was nice to see the dogs of Noble. How, how many pets are represented in Noble now? <laughs> well, we've got, we're nine full-time and I think everyone had a dog and a couple of people have a cat. Wow. Is there a divide between the dog people and the cat people? Cat people were, no, it was pretty much. Oh, you don't want to talk about it. I sense a divide that you don't <laughs> Look, want I'm a dog. I'm a dog person. So. No, I get it. I get it. There's some things you can't share on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, there's an unmentioned sense of tension between the dog and the cat people at Knowable. Enough said. Everyone gets along. Everyone got along. The cats seem nice. I don't, I'm not anti-cat. I'm just pro-dog. And so you're running this company. The team used to be all together in LA. Yeah. And then went remote. And at some point, you made a move up to Portland. Yeah. And you are now running a company in its first year post-launch from home. And you have a couple of young kids at home as well. Right. And how has that been? And how the hell do you manage all of that at once? Yeah. So we came up to Portland. My wife is an architect and had a project up here. And we thought, well, let's try it while you know kids are young and we can go and, and live in a different place. This is kind of an opportunity to mix things up. And I think it's nice to have that diversity in your life, right? So one is just sort of a general high-level statement of it's nice to live somewhere different. I think it's actually a good spark for creativity and not being able to travel as much with little kids. It's nice to kind of find new routines and new ways of looking at the world and setting priorities. In terms of having a couple of kids, I don't think it's easy for anybody to find the right balance between their kids and their work. But I've kind of recently had the realization that I'm not a robot, right? Like number of hours doesn't equal work output. And so actually having a really strong schedule and calendar around here's when I stop working and put away my phone and really and trying to be present with my family has been the, the most beneficial thing for both my family and for my work. Really, really trying to be more present allows me to be more efficient at my job and as a dad and a partner. You and I have had some interesting conversations in the past. We seem to share this challenge where a lot of our sense of identity and value is tied to our sense of productivity. Yeah. I remember you making a joke about it, how weed was never going to be your drug of choice because it made you unproductive. Totally. And that made you feel bad about yourself. And I've thought about that whenever I've smoked weed since then. Um, <laughs> But I'm curious, a lot of CEOs that I work with deeply struggle with this question of, am I valuable when I'm not productive? How much productivity is enough? 
I'm curious, particularly as you've had kids and have had to find a way to turn work off, how you decide when enough is enough now. And if that's challenged or shaped your sense of personal value since then. So I haven't been able to unshackle myself from the connection between productivity and self-worth. I actually just think that taking focused rest time actually makes you more productive. And so my big thing is I think the whole hustle porn, 100-hour week stuff is just bullshit. And people aren't actually productive, right, if they're staring at a screen for 100 hours. I think you have to have focused rest in order to actually recharge. And so this weekend, I didn't check email once. And part of me thought, oh, I, you know, I should check my email. Like, what happens if there's something important? But not doing that and, and breaking out of that habit made me feel Monday morning so excited to go back to work, made me feel recharged and eager to be on top of stuff. So I guess there's two issues. One is we probably should untether the idea of productivity and self-worth. But if you want to be more productive, I actually think that you need to be better at, at rest. How does that realization play out in the way that you work together as a team? And does the team carry this practice of turning off on the weekends as well? Yeah. Unless it's an emergency, you shouldn't be on you shouldn't be working on the weekend. Like we don't want to burn people out, right? The whole point is we're trying to build a company for the long term and we want to have people who bring their whole self to work. And we're a creative company. So having a source of energy outside of work we think is really important. And I found it really helpful to have that rule for others because it 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 makes it easier for me to comply with as well. I'm remembering as you're talking about being a creative company that you were a writer before you were an entrepreneur. And I don't know if I have that exactly right, but I remember when we first met, I remember even a couple of walks that we took where you were deeply exploring the two paths of, do I want to go and be a professional writer or do I want to be an entrepreneur? Right. And I'm curious if your exposure to creative practices has heavily influenced the way that you think about entrepreneurship. And I'll tell you, it comes from a very personal place of pain and exploration, which I'll speak more to, but I'm curious what comes up for you. Yeah. So I, after college, I went to work in finance, which is you know basically like the safest path that I could think of. And after a few years, I was working at a private equity firm where I was good at my job. The firm was doing extremely well. I was flying around in my boss's private jet to go to different meetings and I just had this realization that this wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I'd feel foolish if I didn't try something different. And the two things that were most appealing to me were starting my own company and writing for for a TV show. I was on a comedy magazine in college called The Harvard Lampoon. And growing up as a kid, basically was raised by The Simpsons and, and sort of always thought that I wanted to write for TV. And so I moved to LA to be closer to family. And I wrote some scripts. I I was taking a class at UCLA and uh, yeah, I did. I felt really torn between these two different paths and both of them I think are are exciting. And I think both of them, there is some convergence in the idea that both of them involve storytelling and ultimately just kind of fell in the startups and one foot follow the other and here I am. But someday I'll write a TV show too. Plans for more. Yeah, I asked <laughs> because when we sold my last company a year ago, I, I kind of came out of it with this realization that I just needed a massive shift in the way that I thought about work. And I, I thought, as I looked back at, at the seven years, I thought I had gotten a lot better and there was a lot of change, but it wasn't until I set it aside that I just had this realization of like, I can never work in that way again, which 
left this massive vacuum and I went into this pretty intense curiosity of how other people work and particularly how creatives work because it just seems so idyllic to me and so different from my experience, like this idea of having big chunks of focused time, this idea of working out of inspiration, not working when there was no inspiration. It just felt so contrary to what you referred to as hustle porn, which I think is probably closer to my, I don't know if it's my natural state, but for sure my learned state. So I'm, I'm deeply curious and I love that you guys are taking a different approach. Yeah, there's a famous book, The Artist's Way, right? Is that the book that you're referring to? Yeah, that was one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember talking to a friend who who wrote for Parks and Rec. And I asked her, how many hours a day do you actually work? And she's like, I work four hours a day. You know, like she's like, I'm, I do four hours of focused creative writing work. And the rest of the time, I'm just trying to rest and like recharge. And I thought, that's amazing, right? And, you know, if you really look at your calendar, of like how many hours you're spending where you're doing focused, high impact work. It's definitely not 12 hours a day. Yeah, that's very much the line of exploration that I went down. I I read a book called Rest that had a big impact on my thinking about it. I also Mm -hmm. read a book called How Artists Work, I think it was called. And just looking at all of these people that had lived very high impact lives from like scientists to writers to poets to business and industry leaders, politicians. And it was just fascinating to see how many of the greats were not working eight to 12 hours a day and how much they prioritize rest and recovery alongside of output. I need to find it, but there's a Harvard Business Review article which basically says that the best corporate athletes are the ones who take rest and have creative avenues outside of work. So if you want to be productive, you should rest and be good at rest. Treat rest like work. Easier perhaps done if you are getting paid by a TV show and have a very clear input-output regime each day. How do you do that when you're leading a venture-backed company that is burning cash, has a finite lifeline, needs to raise capital? What shows up for you there and how do you manage that? It's really hard because there's no right answer, right? There isn't, okay, this is the number of hours that you need to work to justify your existence as as an entrepreneur. So it's something I struggle with, but there are certain micro habits that I've found that have really helped me find a better balance. And one is just the realization of what we talked about, right? Is if you want to be good at your job, you can't quote unquote work a hundred hours a week. Like it's just not sustainable. It's not the best use of your time. I think I subscribe to the Fred Wilson summary of what a CEO should do. It's set a vision, hire the best people to fulfill that mission and make sure they know the mission and then make sure there's money to pay those people, right? Like at the core of it, that's what I I go back to. And and I think I actually heard that from you, Matt, when I was starting out as an entrepreneur. So I, I really just try to focus on what's the highest leverage stuff that I can do and what can I empower other people to do around me? Because if any entrepreneur wants to build a scalable business, then you you can't do it all by yourself. You have to find other people who are going to come on the journey with you and all row in the same direction. And so I've tried to focus more of my time on getting better at that skill and less on trying to micromanage everything. Yeah, I love that. One of my big aha moments that was paired with a sense of deep remorse was, uh, I think, three or four years into running 2020, I had this realization as I as I had accrued enough years that I could look backward. What I realized was that the times that we had most excelled was when we had stopped banging our heads against the wall 
and actually taken a breath and looked at what was working and what wasn't working and given ourselves some space to be creative to figure out what we might do that was, fuck, I wish I remembered the word, octagonal? What's the word? Orthogonal. 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 Oh, God, that would have been the perfect callback. Or that, that, that would be <laughs> orthogonal to our current line of thinking. And conversely, as I looked back, I thought, God, the things that we have really fucked up were when we were just pushing too hard and banging our heads against the wall and not even not even taking space to look at what wasn't working or to look at, you know, like one degree removed from what we were staring at. And that's when I, for myself, began a pretty big exploration of taking space from work as a CEO. And then, and then took another year or so where I started to actually realize, oh man, like I've created a culture where people bang their heads against the wall and we had to totally reimagine the way that we thought about creating the space for the entire team. And it's one of the biggest challenges I find in coaching too, is almost every first time founder has somewhere along the line been taught that hours in creates successful output. And, you know, that may be true in school where there's enough answers to be memorized and regurgitated. But as as you and I both know, it's super counterproductive in entrepreneurship. Yeah, because entrepreneurship, by definition, you're trying to do something that no one else has done exactly the same way before, right? So it involves creativity, it involves connecting dots and higher level thinking. And you have to imagine that we're still living this industrial revolution mindset of humans are factory workers. And that's just not true. And in most fields, or in many fields, at least today. So I I think it's one of those tragic legacy metrics that people use. And and maybe COVID in many ways will help reduce that, right? And and I think with, with remote work, companies that will prosper are the companies that figure out how to evaluate people based on outcome and not on FaceTime. Ooh, I love that. What's your team going to think when they hear this conversation? Are they going to think that we're there at Knowable? <laughs> I mean, what are you asking specifically? Do you think they're going to say, yeah, that sounds right? Or are they going to think like, oh, that's bullshit. This guy is... <laughs> sends me so much weekend work. Yeah. Always <laughs> checking on me, making sure I'm at my computer, tied to my desk. No, I I mean, different people are wired different ways. and And I think different jobs require different things, but... If you're in a creative industry, I, I really think dispelling the myth of hours and equals productivity is is so important. And and looking at things, especially a, a startup, it's still a marathon, right? Like you're trying to build for the long term. So if you just run straight into a wall, that's not that's not helping anyone, least of all yourself. I love it, man. How far how far we've come? We've got it all figured out. I know, I know. I wish I knew all this ten years ago. I would have saved myself a lot of anxiety. Today's episode is brought to you by Pluto Pillows. In all of life's little ups and downs, sleep is perhaps your most important ally. Pluto provides a personalized pillow directly to your door. The only irony here for me is that I loved my Pluto pillow until my wife stole it, and now she loves it. Personalized for me, but no longer mine. Well, still a win for the family, I suppose. Check out PlutoPillow.com. All orders receive free shipping and a 100-night guarantee. Today's episode is also brought to you by Sanity Labs. Sanity Labs provides founder and executive coaching designed by founders for founders. If you have considered hiring a CEO coach but had a hard time finding one who really knew what it felt like to be in the founder or CEO seat, 
be sure to check out Sanity Labs. Sanity bridges leadership development with actual tactics for company building to ensure you are not alone in the hardest parts of your role. Visit sanitylabs.co for more details. Reminder before we return to the episode, if you have any questions or topics you'd like covered in an upcoming episode or any feedback at all, please email us at questions at the sanitypod.com. Now back to our episode. I'm really curious to talk about how you're thinking about the rest of the year now. I know that I can remember we took a walk in January and we were just chatting through the ideal plan for Noble for the year and the the key risks that you guys were sitting with, the things that you were excited to build and test and launch, some of the milestones you were hoping to get to before the next financing round. And I'm curious, has that sustained? Has it shifted? How are you thinking about capital? I've heard really mixed reviews on what the capital landscape looks like right now. How is all of that for you? Yeah, so we're we're fortunate to have more than a year runway right now. So I'm not quite in the like red zone. And from my take on the market, I think if you're in a traditional retail business, it's so, so, so hard and so challenging, right? Because you have to basically pivot. We're fortunate to be an early stage company in an industry that's actually benefited by COVID, right? So the forecast was that online learning would be a $300 billion industry over the next five years. And now it's forecast to be a trillion dollars in the next five years. So dramatically accelerated surge in in the category that we're in. So in many ways, this is helping Knowable in so many ways, right? Like also because we're an audio first company, we're actually still able to make content in a way that video companies can't ones that require big crews, et cetera, they, they just can't get around shelter-in-place laws right now. So we can just send somebody a mic and instructions on how to record great audio, and we're still able to produce, and we're able to actually tap into a lot of talent right now that we, we otherwise wouldn't be able to. So we've signed some really exciting guests um, and experts for our upcoming courses. And yeah, uh, I saw a tweet that was basically like, somebody probably like found a monkey paw and made a wish that they could bake more bread. Like In many ways, I feel like this is like a monkey paw sort of like dream for a startup of, hey, the world is changing dramatically and your startup is in a good position to benefit from that change. Obviously, that doesn't mean, you know, no one would wish this, right? But I think being in online education today is is a good place to be for a startup. And you guys haven't always been in online education. And one of the things that I've really grown to admire about you and Alex is your resiliency and creativity and going through numerous ideas to get to where you are now. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that so that there's some more context around where we've arrived today? Yeah. So Matt, you and I met through an accelerator program, which is basically like a grad school for entrepreneurs. And and I I generally recommend for first-time entrepreneurs. So the lessons that were instilled there by Will Sue, the founder of Mucker, was that startups fail for two reasons and only two reasons. One, they run out of money or two, the founders quit. And that has basically been ingrained in my thinking of, which is I'm an optimist, right? And I always think like, hey, even if we fail at this setback, if we still have money, we can figure something else out. So Alex and I, this is basically our third company together. We ran a company called Social Engine, which made software for people and companies to create their own social networks. And we sold that in 2014. We then launched a user-generated video platform called Vidme, and we scaled it to over 25 million monthly users. And 
the platform was growing, but we realized that we didn't have escape velocity as a venture back business. The competitive landscape had changed dramatically, and we just felt totally outgunned by by YouTube and Facebook and Snapchat and some of the other players and made a really, really tough call to sell that business and work on something new. And I think that was the hardest decision I've made in my career and, and certainly felt a lot of PTSD post-decision. But we had a bunch of other ideas that we thought could be more, even more compelling than what we were working on and lots and lots of bad ideas. And then when we landed on Knowable, it, it just it felt right. And we haven't looked back since, since moving forward on this idea. When you and I met, we were going through MicroLab together. And I wrote a blog post. Well, I started it in, in November. I finished it last week and pushed it out. And it's been one of the more widely read posts that I've written in some time about the challenges that we had as co-founders at 2020 that resulted in me being the only original co-founder left in the company after four years or so. Mm -hmm. I'm remembering back when we met that you were working with your brother and now you don't. As I was going through the writing the post myself, I was just thinking about how ubiquitous the, the challenges are among co-founders. Even co-founder relationships where things are fairly healthy, there are challenges, much like a marriage. And I'm curious what you'd be up for sharing about your experience of working with your brother, also perhaps what you learned through that. And I, I know that it, some of those learnings resulted in the partnership that you found with Alex. What would you be up for sharing on that front? Yeah, I think the analogy to marriage is right. And when it works, it's beautiful and amazing. And when it doesn't, it can be really messy and tragic and painful. And uh, so I, I left my job in finance and, and I teamed up with my older brother, who's eight years older, to help him with the startup idea that he had. And we basically made every first time founder mistake possible. Like we didn't talk about equity beforehand. It was sort of like, oh, we'll just like figure it out. Uh, we didn't really know about vesting and you know, roles and responsibilities and understanding product market fit. Like we just started kind of just jumped into it and assumed that things would work out. And it didn't, it didn't work out. And we got into a disagreement and that I think there were probably other issues that, you know, is not uncommon for, for siblings to have that kind of just got brought up because of all of that tension. But after my brother and I split up as co-founders, I met Alex and he had also, was also going through basically co-founder divorce around the same time. And, and we just became we became friends first and shared input and helped each other with their their startup ideas. And I think Alex and I just began to realize that, oh, we had grown wiser around what a great co-founder is or what a great co-founder fit is, rather. And in many ways, you know, you can't get to the the great relationship until you've had some that don't work out. And it's obviously very sad to me. It's probably like the most emotionally vulnerable place for me is the fact that like my brother and I don't have the same relationship that we did at all before we started working together. Um, but I am very grateful that I have a great relationship with my current co-founder, Alex, and it's given me a lot of perspective on, on how lucky I am to have that. I really appreciate you sharing that story. I know it's going to normalize challenges that a lot of first-time teams are facing. And I, I know that because I hear about these challenges very frequently as a coach. I'm curious if you could go back and give yourself any advice, go back to, to day zero, even as you were thinking about the idea of being an entrepreneur and thinking about who you might like to work with and how you might explore and solidify that relationship, what advice would you give to younger Warren? I mean, just really learn a lot before you 
dive in. But in many ways, you know, you learn by doing stuff, right? So it's it's really hard to play the counterfactuals out. I think what you're doing, sharing people's stories is the best, right? So the more that you can learn from others who have come before you, the faster you'll be able to get to where you want to be, right? So talk to people who are years ahead of you on the path that you want to be on and figure out what they did that worked. And just as importantly, what did they do that didn't work? And what about to co-founders specifically? Perhaps even when you speak with or advise early stage co-founders today, is there any advice that you give them that comes from your own experience? Be careful about working with family, certainly. And I've learned that the hard way. And something I've learned recently is the difference between kind and nice. So oftentimes people conflate the two. And I think that when you're nice, you do something that's polite to avoid short-term displeasure. But when you're kind, you're compassionate, but also honest. And I think the sooner you can get to kind in any relationship, the better, right? Because then you, you're able to say what you really think while holding the realization that that can be both painful and also helpful. So I think good communication in any partnership, whether it's co-founder or partner outside of work is, is just super important. And I think for co-founders particularly, ideally you find a partner who has complementary skill sets. Like you've got this Venn diagram where you're probably the same age, you basically have kind of like the same long-term interests, but you have separate spheres of domain expertise or areas of interest, right? So for me and for Alex, Alex is a programmer and a designer, and I focus on the business and basically try to take anything off his plate that isn't product so that he can focus on product and, and I can focus on the business and the strategy as much as possible. So you want to find somebody who, who you like, but who you can also trust in their area of expertise and that know that they'll trust you in your area of yours. One of the things that I think is most unique to me about you and Alex is you guys obviously work together a lot and work together quite well. But the thing that's most weird to me and awesome is I've been at parties with you guys on like a Saturday night where I've found the two of you like off in a quarter having a drink and chit-chatting about things entirely separate from work. And I, I think you are the only founding team that I've spent substantial time with who will actually hang out intentionally given other <laughs> options. I mean, that's awesome yeah. and special and unique. And I, are there any rituals that you guys have taken to that have helped with that or anything that other teams might learn from? I don't know. I mean, I it is rare and unique. Like Alex and I, at least before I had kids, we, we went on vacations together, right? Like we worked together all the time and then we would go on vacation. Like we would take our vacations. We went to Japan together for two weeks and it was, you know, we're friends too, which is, it's really nice. And I think we're able to compartmentalize kind of work talk and, and life talk. So do try to keep like kind of office hours and friend hours, but there's no real practice. I think so much of it is, is about fit in the beginning. And, and just what I talked about earlier of like, you respect each other in your areas of expertise, but you have a, a common overlap area of what you're trying to build long-term and what kind of person you want to be. I, I think Alex is just a really intellectually curious person. So like I'm always, there's always something new to talk about with him. And that's a great trait in any person, not just a co-founder. Man, Alex is going to love this podcast. He's definitely my better half. <laughs> Don't let it go to his head though. <laughs> well, Warren, this has been a great conversation already. Is there anything that we've missed or that's on your mind that you think would be of service to people that are listening and facing 
challenges that are analogous to the ones that you've been dealing with this year? I mean, I, I feel extremely fortunate, you know, in many ways, I, I don't want to downplay just how hard of a climate this is for most people, right? I think a lot of people are facing increasing anxiety on all fronts, home, financial, relationship, just macro concern for humanity. So I think one thing we haven't talked about that I want to mention is I hired a CEO coach last year, and it's far and away been the best decision I've made in my career. This was before, Matt, you launched your your coaching career. But I was really reluctant to do it. I don't know. I don't know why. I just thought it was like a waste of my investor's money to say like, oh, I'm going to take time away from my job. Somebody's going to coach me, and and I'm going to pay them a high rate. And it's just going back to that idea of working smart instead of working hard. It's so useful to have somebody who can check your thought habits and push you to perform at your best level. So if you can, if you're in a position to work with somebody, often when you're most strapped is when you kind of need to invest in yourself. And I think this is probably a good time for a lot of people to to shake off the stigma of needing a coach. Top athletes have coaches. I, I don't know why top performers across all other areas don't need coaches too. Any advice on finding the right coach? Uh, we'll pause here for the Sanity Labs ad, obviously. But uh, <laughs> that aside, obviously, the the fit between coach and client is a very personal, very subjective fit. I'm curious how that exploration process was for you and any advice that you would give others that are exploring hiring a coach for the first time. I, I asked other founder friends if they had coaches and if so, who was their coach and uh, was working with them and what their style was. So I got I got a few references and I talked to a few different coaches and I, it, just like a therapist, you know, you kind of want to find that right fit. And if it doesn't feel right, it just doesn't feel right. And that's okay. It's not to say that that therapist isn't a good therapist. It's just, they're not the right person for you. And same with coaching. But then I, I just sort of found one who I thought I clicked with and I really, really felt like it was the right style. So my advice would be talk to a few different coaches and see who you, who you genuinely connect with and go from there. Beautiful. Maybe let's close with, in addition to coaching, any other practices that you have in your life right now that help you to find the space from work, help you to re-energize your own creativity. You're one of my top friends when it comes to inspiration of life practices. And I'm curious what's working for you in this particularly challenging year. I'm a huge believer in investing in good habits. So Matt, you actually recommended a book to me that you I later learned had not read. It was called Miracle Morning. That's how that's how I roll. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is my favorite book. You got to read it. Uh, very unfortunately cheesy title, but the book itself is was really powerful because it talks about how to build good habits, basically, and and focusing on the morning. So I really have focused on starting my day right. And something I learned recently is when you first open your eyes, the first thing. I now do is I think about something that I'm grateful for and usually from the previous day. So like I try to think about someone or something that happened to me that just made me smile or feel a sense of joy. Starting your day with that gratitude, at least for me, just changes the tenor of everything, right? Because if you have your health, pretty much everything else is for you to decide how you want to perceive it, right? And if you approach life from a lens of gratitude, then Everything just seems more abundant. And so that's one thing that I, I recommend to people that I found really useful. Another thing is I deleted all social apps from my phone, 
I'll sometimes use Instagram, but just on the weekend. So like I'll delete it during the week. And then on the weekend, you know, on a Sunday, I'll have it on my phone um, and kind of check in with, with friends who are, who are posting online, but otherwise just trying to preserve my attention for the stuff that really, really matters. And that's, you know, one-on-one connections, family, deep work, and investing in myself more too. I'm noticing how these practices tie back to that first learning that you mentioned early in our conversation about how startups fail primarily when founders quit. Right. And therefore, this stuff that may sound cheesy around gratitude or self-preservation, it, it really is a way of building resiliency, which might be the number one ingredient to actually making all this work. I hope so. I think you're on the right track, my friend. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate our conversation. Thanks, Matt. I always find it funny when you say us. Is there someone else? (laughs) You're right. Just me. Thanks for being with me in my closet. My pleasure. That's today's episode. Please follow and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Your positive reviews mean the world to us. Lastly, if you have any questions or topics you'd like covered in an upcoming episode, please email us at questions at thesanitypod.com. Thank you so much for listening.